This is Andercast, inspiring business stories from the UCLA community without the tuition costs. Welcome to Andercast. I'm your host, Parth Shah. Today, we're on the road in Skid Row interviewing one of the 500 most influential individuals in LA, Mark Larander, the CEO of Chrysalis. For those who haven't heard of Chrysalis, Chrysalis is an LA-based nonprofit organization that seeks to change homeless or low-income individuals' lives by helping them gain skills needed for employment. Some jobs include custodians, forklift operator, cook, and even a bus driver. In 2006, Chrysalis helped over 2,300 of its clients find employment. During his tenure, Mark has led significant expansion of Chrysalis, including a 60% growth in programmatic outcomes the redevelopment or renovation of all three of his centers located all over LA and nearly doubled the agency's revenue. Not to mention, Mark is one of the handful nonprofit leaders to make the LA Business Journal 500 list. Mark, it's an incredible honor to have this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, part thanks. It's, uh, it's great to have this opportunity. I must say that it is uh, Monday morning. And there's a line outside the door of people wanting to come in and use your center to improve themselves and get a job. Your clientele, from what I understand, is 100% low income, may even have a criminal record, may live in an unstable housing, and may just have a high school diploma, if that. But they're looking for a second chance. So can you tell us a little bit more about Chrysalis, what brings them here, and what the center offers to them? Sure. So at Chrysalis, as you mentioned, we're all about employment. Our goal is to help men and women with significant barriers to getting a job do just that and not just get the job, but hold on to the job and progress so that they can thrive and and support their families. The typical client that we work with is 42 years old and they are unstably housed, meaning they're in a shelter or maybe they're couch surfing, maybe they're living in their car. Um, 60% of them have criminal backgrounds. And they haven't worked in a long time. That's that's kind of the typical profile of who we're working with. And with today's economy, if you didn't have those barriers, you'd be able to go down to Vons and get a job right now, right? Almost every employer in LA is hiring at the entry level. But our clients, if they were to try that, they're going to get screened out because the employer just doesn't think that they've got the skills or that they'll stick to it, or they're afraid of the background issues, or what have you. So our job is to work with our clients, kind of like a project manager would, and think about what are the barriers that are holding somebody back from, from being successfully employed, and let's just start ticking those off one by one. For some of our clients, it's a self-esteem issue. They just don't believe in themselves. They've been told from the time they were very young that they're not going to amount to anything, that they don't have any skills. So we have to actually demonstrate to them that that's not true and and they really can uh, uh, progress and, and do some great things, but they, they just don't believe in themselves. So that's one set of issues. Sometimes it's a set of vocational skills that they need. Let's say they want to work in a warehouse, um, but in order to do that, you have to have a forklift driver certification card. Great. We will make sure that happens. We will pay for you to go to forklift driver school and get that certification. Whatever it is, we're trying to tick those those barriers off the list so that we can get somebody working as soon as possible. So walk me through the process. They walk into your center and then how do they tap into the services that you offer? So the, the first thing you should know about Chrysalis is our program is completely voluntary. So the men and women that come to us uh, find us a couple of different ways. They uh, are referred by a friend or an acquaintance or a family member, which is 
it's kind of cool. It's like having five-star Yelp reviews, you know, that folks find us because they know we're providing value based on what other users are saying. Um, but they also hear about us from other housing programs and other program programs that we work with. So they walk through the doors just like you guys did this morning. And we do orientation every day at eight o'clock. And we are able to talk with our clients or prospective clients about here's how our program works. Here's what we need from you, which is essentially you're at least 18 years of age and you are interested in working. You're not just coming here for the coffee, but you're interested in working. That's all. On our side, um, what we will do is commit to putting them through our core program, which consists of uh, four to six classes uh, that talk about the basics of a job search. It's not a PhD level program. This is talking about what's a resume, what's an interview, what's appropriate business behavior, um, what's a smartphone, things that for most of us, we've probably been doing since we were 16 and we're familiar with, but for a lot of our clients, they just have not had that experience. So we'll commit to putting folks through that core part of our program, which takes a week to two weeks, depending on how diligent they are. Then we will do a, uh, a resume for a client. We can do a resume for every single client, even if they've been in prison for 20 years. They did stuff while they were in prison. And we can translate that onto that piece of paper that's really important. And then we'll do a practice interview with the client using that resume. So those classes, the resume, and the practice interview, that forms the front part of our program. And frankly, there are a lot of programs around town that do that. There's nothing particularly special about it. But the next phase is where the real difference happens. They then get matched with a case manager. We call them employment specialists. And the job of the case manager is to kind of peel back the onion and figure out what exactly is going on with this individual that's in front of me right now. And what do we need to do to help them achieve their success? Not success that we define, but success that they define. So we do goal planning work. We do um, listing of barriers, as I mentioned earlier, and then try to figure out how we can get around each of those barriers to get to the eventual goal, which always has to do with employment. Now, although we measure our success by employment, the reality is our clients are living really, really complicated lives. So in order to get to that ultimate goal of helping somebody get a job, we got to talk about housing stability. We got to talk about uh, childcare. We got to talk about trauma that they might have experienced that is going to impact their ability to hold a job. All of these things complicate the job search. And so if they were to walk into an unemployment office, so one of the traditional ones, they would have access to some resources like job listings, and maybe they would see a counselor for a few minutes, but none of this other stuff, none of this deep dive on what's really going on with the whole person, that just wouldn't happen. And yet that's what this particular population needs. One of the things you had mentioned is this is a voluntary service. So what keeps them motivated to keep coming back for this program? My sense of it is that the clients that come to us, they're ready, willing, and able to work. They just don't know how to go about doing it. There's often a, a perception that folks that are homeless or folks living in poverty, they are choosing a lifestyle. They're making a lifestyle choice. They're lazy. They don't want to get their act together. They don't want to do what the rest of us have had to do. After doing this work for 11 years, I can guarantee you that is false. That is a false narrative. The reality is they don't want to be on the public dole. They don't want to be a burden to anybody. They want to be a contributing member of society. And the thing that drives many of them is they have kids. Now, they may not have custody of those kids, but they are a father or a mother, and there is no greater drive than being able to provide for your family. And we hear that time and time again from our clients, that 
They just want to be able to buy a birthday gift for their kid. They want to be respected in their family because they've taken a new direction. They've, they've gotten on a different path. It's not about the money. Yes, they want to make a fair wage and they want to have some nice things, but I almost never hear clients talking about the money. They're talking more about respect and dignity in their family. And I think that's the motivator, right? And we're tapping into that, that intrinsic motivation that all of us have. Um, and they do the work. We're not doing the work for them. They're actually doing it. We just have to find out how to tr get those triggers, how to access the triggers to get folks excited. So how do you keep them motivated? Well, a big part of, of what we do is show them that there is a path, right? That this is not all hypothetical. One of the traditions we have here at Chrysalis is that when a client gets a job, um, they ring a bell in the lobby of our office. And in fact, if we were having this, if, if a bell ringing happens right now while we're doing this interview, we're gonna have to stop the interview because it's mandatory. Everybody's gotta go out to the lobby and the bell rings and you hear the story of this client. They talk about how they got the job, what job they got and words of advice for those that are still looking. By far the best part of the day for any of us. But that's a huge piece of motivation for the clients that are still searching, right? Because, hey, I was sitting next to this woman in class. She didn't seem so great, yet she got a job before I did. Well, man, I can, I can make that happen. So that kind of interaction happens all the time. Um, there's also the, the mutual support. Our lobby is full this morning, as, as you saw. Um, some of those folks know each other. Some of them don't know each other, but they know they're here for the same reason. And there's a lot of sharing of leads like, hey, I'm going for an interview at Target today. And here's what they're looking for. Oh, yeah, great. They're hiring five folks. Why don't you come with me? There's a lot of that camaraderie and uh, support, mutual support that happens. So we do some of that motivation, but they do a lot of it for themselves just being in, in their community. But you have created that environment to make that happen. Well, we do provide a supportive space for it to happen for sure. And we encourage it, right? If you walk into one of our offices, it's bright, it's open, there's no visible security. We have coffee in the morning. Um, we have computers and phones for folks to use. So we, oh, and restrooms, which are a huge issue, particularly in the Skid Row area. And so we are creating a professional environment where folks can network and feel comfortable and feel safe particularly in the areas that we work and where our offices are, they're surrounded by poverty. And in fact, in some cases, the neighborhoods aren't particularly safe. So to come here is like a safe harbor. They know they're going to be treated with dignity and respect. Um, and they give that back to us five times, five times over. We, we never have any issues within our offices. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So tell me, tell me more about how you manage the perception from your employers of these men and women? Because one of the things that I noticed is, of course, if, if somebody has a criminal record, it's hard for an employer to take a risk on that person. So how do you manage those expectations? So the, the perception of an employer is that it's a risk. What we have to do is share with them the facts. So the facts are that men and women that have backgrounds actually stick with their job longer, are more reliable, and work harder than your typical person that you hire just randomly, right? And why is that? Well, it's because, as I mentioned before, our average client is 42. They might have gotten in trouble when they were 18 or 20. When you're in your 40s and things aren't working out for you, you're a very different person, right? Your, your attitudes are different. Your aggressiveness is way down. Um, you are at that point where you recognize you got to take some serious steps to get your, your stuff together. Um, we have employers that talk to us all the time about how they thought they were taking a chance. They hire somebody and it turns out 
they stay twice as long. They work twice as hard because they're not looking at that for that brass ring, right? They're not going for that next big thing. They're just thankful to have an opportunity and for somebody to trust them, for somebody to care. Um, and as a result, they turn out to be really, really great um, employees. We have one uh, employer that we work with, uh, Chef Curtis Stone. He's kind of a celebrity chef and he's been on a number of uh, Food Network and other shows. But he has two restaurants in town, very, very high-end, fancy restaurants. He came to one of our fundraising events a few years ago and he heard one of our clients speak. And he thought, well, you know, that's nice. I suppose I can hire one just because, you know, I'll look good and I'll, it'll make me feel good. So he hires this guy named Daryl. So Daryl ended up being a fantastic employee. And Curtis and Daryl started talking and thought, well, Daryl, there must be more folks like you at Chrysalis. Maybe you can hook me up and hire, bring, bring a few more in. So in the four or five years that Curtis has been working with us, he's hired over 50 of our people at his two restaurants. Daryl now runs the back of house for his largest restaurant, Gwen in West Hollywood. And um, there are, I think, 12 of our clients that are working at Gwen. And Curtis talks about it all the time that these folks are the hardest working, most dedicated employees he has. And that's all great from a business standpoint. But the intangible is what has changed in his restaurant and on his staff. So he's got, you know, a typical L.A. wait staff of actors and musicians and all that kind of stuff. And then he's got a bunch of chrysalis folks that are runners and food prep and dishwashers, but they're interacting all the time. And both sides are learning from each other. So those actors, musician wannabes, whatever, are learning about, oh, my life is hard. Actually, my life is pretty damn good compared to my colleague that I might have just stepped over to get to work. A month ago, right? It's just been a great cultural shift within his organization that um, is paying dividends for him. On top of just doing the right thing from a business standpoint. Wow, that's incredible. It's it's interesting you say that because another interview that Mike and I did was with Howlin' Rays, the the chicken Nashville chicken hot chicken, mm, mm-hmm. and he employ he does something very similar where he takes employees that don't necessarily have the education. But they have the passion, they have the drive. And he said the same thing. It's these guys work double because they're there to prove themselves. And those are some of the best employees that they've had. They'd, all they need is a chance. Yeah. I, I've been on the line watching uh, at, at Gwen, uh, our men and women work. And they're cleaning stemware, you know, the, the wine glasses that are like, they're $20 a piece. And there's a nonstop flow of them coming at them constantly. They got to be fast. They got to be efficient. And they got to be super careful. I don't know that I could do that. Like maybe for 15 minutes, I could do it. I don't think I could do that work all day long. It's hot. It's messy. It's wet. And our men and women just thrive in that environment. They love it. And um, so, yeah, exactly to that point, they are hard workers. They appreciate the opportunity. And uh, it kind of puts the rest of us to shame sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of employees, one of the things that Mike and I noticed as we were roaming the halls is it's Monday, but it seems like none of the employees here have the Monday blues. They're all extremely motivated. They're all extremely inspiring. They're energetic. And, you know, just walking around, we could feel that energy. So how do you how do you manage to keep your employees motivated? This is a very tough environment to be in. You know, I've worked in both the private sector, corporate sector, and and now the nonprofit sector. And we have this huge advantage of being mission driven. So everybody that works here, when you're going through the interview process, we're very clear about the work we do, how hard it can be and how emotionally draining it can be, but also how rewarding, intrinsically 
personally satisfying and rewarding it can be, even if you're not going to make as much financially as you might at Google or Facebook or someplace else. Um, so the folks that are working here, I think there's a bias, a self-selection bias, right? They know what they're getting into. So they want to change the world. They want to uh, see social justice in action. And so they're, they're a part of that every single day. Um, but to get over the hard parts, there's a tremendous amount of self-support that goes on um, across my staff, where you might be in an office doing some case management work with a client, and the client starts talking about suicide. Now, that is really, really hard. And you're going to deal with that in the moment, and we're going to get that client connected to the appropriate mental health resources. But then when that client leaves your office, how does that make you feel, right? That's super, super heavy. And so we make sure that our, our staff know you got to take a time out. You got to go take a walk around the block. Go talk to one of your colleagues. Go get a cup of coffee with them. Um, process that. So this is not a factory. This is not a, a floor where we're expecting certain levels of productivity every day from our staff. Obviously, we're managing to that at a higher level. And, and we've got all kinds of metrics and things um, like any large organization would. But I never want my line staff feeling the pressure of that. I want to make sure they can do the right thing by their clients every single day and they can take the time they need to process that. Um, that's not efficient. It's not the fastest way to get stuff done, but it's the only way I know to how to get stuff done so that we have the right people doing that work every single day. It's building that human personal connection. For sure. We're in the relationship business, right? And the way I look at, if you look at it from a commercial standpoint in terms of what we're doing, we have our, our clients, that's what we call the people we serve. I look at them as customers and they are voting with their feet to come in every single day. If we don't have clients coming in every day, we don't have a business. So we need to make sure that we provide great service to those customers every day and that we're providing value to them, um, just like a for-profit would. And that means that my staff that are providing that service, they need to be supported. They need to be well-trained. They need to know that they can come to a office that is professional, that has the right office equipment, that has the right technology. They've got the right space. The AC works. All of that stuff has to be there to support them. We're not going to necessarily have the, you know, the foosball tables and all the rest of it that a high-tech startup might, but we do want to create an environment where people can do their best work. Um, and that, again, it's not necessarily efficient, but it's effective because if you look at our outcomes and if you look at the number of people that we're helping on a daily basis, um, I would put us up against any nonprofit um, that does this kind of work. I'm very proud about the cost effectiveness of the work that we do. So tell me more about the training that you provide to your employees. Again, this is a very tough environment, especially listening to these stories. So how do you train them? How do you, how do you keep them engaged and here for a longer period of time? So all of our, our frontline staff, the, the employment specialists, the typical profile is this is their first or second job out of college, um, probably a liberal arts major not necessarily in uh, counseling or social work, but they have this desire to get hands-on with a problem in the community. Um, and that's why they come to us. That's why they work for us. So the way we take that, that raw talent is we then match them up with another case manager and do a lot of shadowing. Um, we have some book learning that they can do as well. And we uh, everything we do is based on trauma-informed care. It's a particular approach to case management. And so we do a lot of training specifically on that to make sure they're capable of doing it. But to a great extent, a lot of what they're doing is learned by doing. Yes, there's the shadowing and there's the formal training, 
but then they're going to be given clients and there's, they have a caseload, right? And they're going to, they'll be easy clients that are, they can just whip right through, but there'll be tough ones where they'll be stumped. And that's where that peer support comes in. Each new staff member has a buddy so that they can kind of fall back on that buddy to help them with either a technical aspect of the job or a particularly hard case, or how does stuff get done around here? How do decisions get made? I don't really understand. So we have that, that support system that's there, but they're also encouraged just to talk amongst their peers. We have case conferences on a weekly basis and other team meetings so that um, if they're stumped by a particular situation, they've got somebody they can go to and they don't have to feel like they're all alone. Our, our case managers, our employment specialists, there's really three paths for them. One is that they um, uh, get promoted. So we're a rapidly growing organization. And last year, I think we promoted like 40 or 45 staff members. So they, they have that opportunity if that's something they want to do. Many of them go on to grad school. So they'll work for us for two to four years and then go on to that next step in life. And others will leave Chrysalis either because they decide this just isn't the right environment for them or they want to be promoted or grow to another opportunity. And we just don't happen to have that. So being a, a employment specialist is not necessarily a lifelong avocation. It is hard work. Um, but while they're in that role, we want to make sure they're really well supported and trained and, um, and that they're doing the right thing by our clients all the time. It sounds, again, going back to the whole human relationship, it sounds like you really value your employees and they value what they're doing and you encourage and empower them to go out and really make a difference. But one of the things that you've mentioned is Chrysalis is growing. And from what I understand now, you have four locations, one here, uh, Santa Monica, Orange County, and then... In the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. So how do you manage the expansion given that it's a nonprofit and the formula that you've built here, how do you make sure that that formula works in a different location? Yeah, that is probably uh, one of the things I spend the most of my time on is how do we make sure as we grow, we maintain the culture, that we maintain those elements that are really unique to Chrysalis and special so that folks understand the mission and they feel connected to it personally. It's one thing here in our downtown office where I'm here, I see what's going on. Most of my management team is around here. But when we have a satellite office down in Anaheim, for example, I, I will be there this week, but I'm not there every week and I'm not there every day, certainly, nor is the rest of my management team. So making sure that our hiring process is very deliberate, the support and training is delivered in that way, that the facility looks like a chrysalis facility, it, it's, it all takes a lot of thought. And we're learning as we go along. We will open an additional two offices in the next 18 months. We're working on where those will be right now, and um, that will definitely test us. We're, we're learning as we go along here that growth is great, but it's hard. It's really, really hard and exhausting to do it right. I bet. How did you decide on those locations? We have a reputation uh, as a management team, probably amongst our staff, as being super analytical. So not surprisingly, um, we developed a fairly complicated, what we call the matrix. It's a 26-element uh, decision-making framework where we rated the various sites that we were considering against those 26 characteristics and used a uh, red light, yellow light, green light type of thing. And rather than scoring them, which we toyed with, that was going to be too complicated. So we just wanted to kind of get a sense of what's the preponderance of evidence suggesting. And some of those 26 characteristics are weighted heavily, more heavily than others. 
And when we did the first cut of that 18 months ago, that's when Orange County won. It was clear that everything lined up to be a very positive uh, opportunity in Orange County. And in fact, that has happened. It's been it's been fantastic. A great welcome from the community. Clients are flocking to the office. Our partners have been great. Fundraising has been really, really strong. So this next choice that we make um, is going to be a hard one because I, it's not as obvious. And these are very expensive bets. Each of our offices costs about a million dollars a year to run. So we need to make sure it's sustainable. We need to make sure that not only do we have that one-time funding to get it jump started, but it'll be there year after year after year. So these are big bets to make, and I don't really want to mess it up, nor does the rest of my management team. You've done well so far, so I, I completely trust you. <laughs> As you've mentioned, the cost is it's quite a lot. Uh, in some ways, what I admire about you is the fact that you do run it like a business and you're able to expand. What similarities do you see between running a nonprofit versus a private company or something in the corporate world? Well, the, the, the main similarity, and I think sometimes this gets lost in the nonprofit world, running a nonprofit is running a business. We run to the numbers, we have P&Ls, we have balance sheets, all that kind of stuff. But the biggest difference is in our world, we're expected to, to basically budget to almost a zero bottom line. If you're a for-profit, your goal is to maximize shareholder return by definition, right? In our world, our uh, mission is to benefit the community and our stakeholders. And there are many of them. There are the clients that we serve. There's the community at large. There's our board of directors. There's our donors. There's our staff. So trying to juggle all of that and have everything align and, oh, by the way, um, not lose money in a given year is pretty tricky. Um but it requires a level of financial sophistication, cash flow management, and all the rest of it that um, in the for-profit world, you just, you just do that. You have finance teams that do that, right? In the nonprofit world, that thinking is not as common. It is getting more common because I think more folks are figuring out that that's the reality. But the tradition of Chrysalis has been, we've always been more business oriented, partially driven by something we really haven't talked much about yet. Um, we own and operate three businesses ourselves that provide transitional jobs for a subset of our clients. And so to manage those businesses and satisfy the needs of our customers and bill appropriately and all of that kind of stuff, you got to have a fair amount of financial sophistication to do that. So just managing that $20 million business unit encourages us to be very business-minded of the rest of the organization as well. Tell me more about those three businesses. Yeah, so we we have these, these businesses that are designed, they're all designed with a common theme, which is clients that would not otherwise be able to go down to your local warehouse or grocery store or what have you to get a job because of all the barriers we talked about earlier. They will work for us for up to a year. And they pick up meaningful skills and learn what it's like to show up to work every day and respond to supervision and all that good stuff and then transition to outside work. Um, one of the businesses is called Chrysalis Works. It's a street clean and maintenance business that works primarily with business improvement districts throughout town. We have a, a business, uh, a staffing business called Staffing uh, that works with affordable housing providers to do janitorial and front desk staffing work. And then our third business is called Roads. It's a partnership with the LA Mayor's office and Caltrans to do uh, freeway right-of-way cleanup and beautification and landscaping work. So between those three businesses, on any given week, we have about 370 of our clients that are working for us on our payroll. Again, with the intent that it's a temporary transitional job, you can imagine the complications of hiring folks that nobody else wants to hire, get them trained up, 
and then you want them to leave. It's a crazy business model, but that's why we do it. So does a lot of your profit come from those three businesses to support this big business? Yeah. So the, the businesses themselves from an operating basis are profitable. We call it margin in our world. Um, however, to get the men and women into those businesses and to get them skilled up and provide the additional supervision, that costs money. And so that, that margin, if you will, is being used to support getting those folks skilled up and pipelining them into those businesses. We did a time and motion study a few years ago and, and figured out that of the time that our supervisors spend with our, our employees in the field, about 18% of that time is just not productive time that a typical commercial operator would not spend, right? It's the additional coaching and support and training. Well, somebody's got to pay for that. So the profits from the business essentially are paying for that. I bet. I bet. Uh, so tell me more about your role as a CEO. It sounds like you're not only just running these three businesses, but you're also looking at two more locations. How much of your time is spent running the businesses, coaching your employees, looking for the next talent, as well as fundraising, which I assume is also a large part of your role? Yeah, I, I'm really, really fortunate in that we, we've got an incredible staff at all levels of Chrysalis, but my senior leadership team uh, in particular, there are six of us on the senior leadership team and four of us have worked together for 11 years, which is really, really rare in our sector. So I've got the four of us that have worked together for a long time and the other two so-called new people on our team have been with us for three, four or five years. So we have a very seasoned management team and I have to do very little of the day-to-day -day management. My team takes care of that and escalates things when necessary. So what I spend the most of my time on is external stuff. So fundraising, managing our board, talking with politicians, policymakers, and other external stakeholders, and then setting strategy with my team um, in terms of selecting the next site, figuring out how we're going to pay for it, if we want, if we have ambitions beyond those two next sites, what does that look like and what do we need to put into play now so that that can be tapped five years from now? So I get to play at a higher level, which which is a lot of fun. And I get some got to be stressful. It, it's stressful because the bets are really getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When I first started at Chrysalis, our overall agency budget was around $12 million. It's now $28 million. And yeah, I do lose sleep at night thinking about the decisions that we're making and how sustainable are they? And if something goes wrong, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with it? But you know what? I will take that. I will take those challenges any day because it means we're doing a lot of good and helping a lot of people. And uh, if that has a little stress that comes with it, like, like we were talking earlier, our clients have some pretty rough lives. I think anything going on in my life is just, <laughs> I can deal with it. How are the board's expectations different for a nonprofit versus a for-profit company? I think in, in the case of our board, we've got 26 members on our board. Um, and because we've been around for a long time, the board has matured to the point where it really understands its role. Um, in fact, Jill Baldoff, who works at UCLA, is our board chair. Um, we work with the board to help set strategy and provide, of course, the fiduciary oversight that any board needs to do legally, but also serve as a fundraising and networking access point for us. So our board knows people in town that can get us access to money or jobs, and they get that that is one of their primary responsibilities, and they do a fantastic job of that. So I feel really, really fortunate to have a supportive board 
that understands they are not the experts on employment. That's why they hire me and I hire a staff that is really good at that. So they don't get involved in the day-to-day stuff unless, unless we ask them to, if there's a problem, but they do get very involved in fundraising and helping be ambassadors for the work that we do throughout the community. That's awesome. You had also, you had also mentioned that you work with politicians. How do you see this area and the homelessness changing in LA? Uh, for the better. Uh, the, the good news is that with the passage of Measure H and HHH 18 months ago, or almost coming up on two years, I guess, the, the community has rallied around this issue of homelessness and said it is not acceptable and we are willing to tax ourselves to do something about it. I, there are not a lot of other communities around the country that have gone that far. And a lot of that was led by Mayor Garcetti. It was led by city council members. It was led by the county board of supervisors, particularly Supervisor uh, Ridley Thomas. Uh, they put a lot of political capital on this issue. And it's a messy issue. There's no clear, easy wins here. And yet they get that it is a human rights issue that needs to be addressed. So I'm really encouraged that politicians are not only responding to what their constituents are saying, but they're doing the right thing morally and ethically, that we are one of the richest economies in the world. How can it be that when we drive through our communities, we see these tent encampments? It just is not right. And we know how to fix it. It's a combination of housing, supportive services, jobs. Uh, it's very clear how to fix it. We just need to resource it properly. And now we've got a lot of resources to do that. And I'm happy to say that our governor, uh, our new governor, also gets it and is providing support for this problem. So I'm actually encouraged in California, not so encouraged in other parts of the country, but here in California, I think we are getting some good traction. What advice do you give to our listeners, young MBAs who want to get into social impact, but don't know if they should go the private sector route first and then switch into nonprofit. The reason why I ask this question is because you were in the corporate world. I believe you were at IBM and then you also started a couple businesses. How did you transition and what advice do you give? The key uh, piece of advice, I think, would be to be opportunistic in a good way. I didn't plan to be here at Chrysalis. I didn't plan to be working in the nonprofit world it kind of came to me through a set of circumstances and opportunities that um, I could not have predicted would happen. I'm really glad that I had the for-profit corporate experience. It was a great uh, training ground. I had a chance to pay off my student loans, made a little money, got to be an entrepreneur and all that good stuff. That has, I use all of those skills every day in the work that I do here at Chrysalis. So I value that. I think if you're interested in getting in the impacts space, a couple of things. One, do a scan and figure out who is doing the kind of work that you want to do. Here in LA, I, I can't quote the exact number of nonprofits, but we have thousands, like tens of thousands of nonprofits. Most of them are tiny. They have budgets of less than $50,000. You can imagine that the impact they're having is not particularly big. And Every single one of those nonprofits started with somebody that had a great idea and they thought they were uniquely positioned to change the world or, or move the needle on that on that issue. Um, I would challenge someone who is really motivated to move the needle. Think about who, could, who they could partner with. Think about who else is doing this work. Think about is there a unique collaboration or way that I can take my skills and bring it to bear with some other partners that are working in the space to move the needle faster in a bigger way as opposed to going solo. Um, I was an entrepreneur myself. I know the thrill of starting something and owning it and having it all within your hands and grasp and all that. Um, but after owning my own company for 13 years, I also figured out 
hey, I would rather have a smaller piece of something much bigger to have more impact and in the for-profit world make more money than to have control over everything because I could never have control over everything. So I think the same rules apply in the impact space. Is this more exciting than the entrepreneurial ventures oh, that you had? Any day of the week, any day. I love this. This is this is like by far the best job I've ever had. I love coming to work almost every day. Not every day, but almost every day. I get to work with super smart people. I know we're making a difference. I mean, there's no question about the work we're doing having an impact. So that it just checks for me all the boxes. And I, I tell people all the time. In some ways, I'm sad that I found this later in life and. My time at Crystal's will come to an end, whether I'm not announcing any retirement here or anything, but you know, I'm in my mid fifties and there will come a time where I need to pass the torch on to the next person. And I'm really stressed about what I'm going to do next because it is not going to be as much fun as this. You can't top this. I I am pretty sure this is going to be the pinnacle of my career uh, from hitting on all the things that make me excited every day. So I feel very fortunate to get here, but it took a lot of other work and jobs to lead me to this, to make me ready for this role, I guess. Any other advice or hard lessons you've learned that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? I think one of the things I had to adjust to um, coming from the corporate sector to this kind of role is being humble and listening. In the traditional business world, we move very, very fast. We have to make quick decisions. Oftentimes, it's top-down decision-making. It's just the way we're set up. In this kind of environment, the people that work at Chrysalis, they are all really important stakeholders. They all have a voice and they expect that voice to be heard. And I didn't get that at first. I, I had a few lessons to learn there. Um, but once I got over myself and figured out that other people actually know what's going on a lot more than I do, how do I listen to that? And how do I harness that energy and basically just figure out ways to get them the resources they need to do the great work they do every day? That was the, the change that I had to make in this kind of um, environment. Took a little, took took a little humility to get there, um, but I'm glad I made that switch. One last question: How can our listeners get involved with the organization? Well, there's a few ways. We depend on volunteers. That's a big part of what we do. Um, I was mentioning earlier about the classes and the resumes and the practice interviews. Those are all done by volunteers, and oftentimes we'll have. Uh, students at local universities that need to get hours banked or what have you for various projects. So we are a great place to do that. Um, the second is being ambassadors for our work. So we're talking about hiring folks that many others have perceptions about, about maybe this is too risky. Maybe I don't want to take a chance. I would ask all of you that are influencers in your communities and are either working at companies that might have hiring opportunities for men and women like we have at Chrysalis, or you're going to be in those roles in the near future, think about that. Think about how you can shape hiring policy um, within your own organization to be a little less biased than it be has open. traditionally been. Be open to it. Exactly. And then the third thing is when you are all very rich and have these startups and all that, just please remember Chrysalis and uh, <laughs> you know send us a few shares of that uh, big startup that's going to be the, the next uh, Google. Mark, I wish I could say that, but I think you're an inspiration to all of us. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I know you have a very busy schedule. Uh, for our listeners, to find out more about Chrysalis, visit changelives.org. Thank you again, Mark. Thanks. Enjoy it's your a day. pleasure. A lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, shoot us an email at andrewcastla at gmail.com.